Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, Clinical Lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This podcast is part of a special series on carrier screening for inherited diseases. Genetic testing is opening up a whole new world of possibilities for prospective parents who wish to find out if they'll have a healthy baby. But at the same time, this new technology is generating complex ethical concerns. In this episode, we'll work through some of these concerns. Today, I'm joined by Associate Professor Ainsley Newson, who's Deputy Director of Sydney Health Ethics at the Sydney School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Ainsley. Hi. Ainsley, I want to put a situation to you and get your thoughts. Just imagine you brought home your newborn baby yesterday. She's beautiful and healthy, just as you imagined she would be. However, she does seem to be a bit floppy. The maternal and child health nurse reassures you that babies are often floppy for a few weeks, but it doesn't improve. Your GP's not sure what's up, so you're referred to a paediatrician who looks worried but won't say why. He refers you to a paediatric neurologist. She examines the baby, and it's obvious that something's wrong because your baby's lower limbs just don't move like you might expect. The neurologist suspects that your baby has a genetic condition called spinal muscular atrophy. You'd never heard of it. The neurologist explains it's a bit like motor neurone disease, but in babies... Till a year or so ago, there was absolutely no hope and almost all babies died by one year of age from progressive weakness and eventual respiratory failure. But now there's a treatment, an injection into the spine every few months, probably for life, but your baby will live longer and probably even walk. However, babies likely to have significant motor disability and the treatment's really too new to know what will happen over the long term. But there's more news to go with this. Both you and your partner are discovered to be carriers for the gene that causes spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. No one in your family has ever had it, and in your pregnancy you had testing for all sorts of things, you think, including Down syndrome and ultrasounds for fetal abnormalities. You even asked your obstetrician if there was anything else you could do to make sure that you had a healthy baby, and you're told that that was it. But now you find out there actually was a program that could have offered screening for spinal muscular atrophy, which some people in some states get access to, but you were not offered it. You love your new baby, SMA and all, but feel pretty angry that you're not offered a choice to have testing before or during the pregnancy. Ainsley, is this a situation you've heard of before? Yes, I have heard of this situation. Um, there's been a few cases of couples who've had a child with a genetic condition who have then turned around and said, why weren't we told? Because as you've mentioned, there are already certain initiatives available depending on where you live. There are also commercial tests available that people can buy either before they become pregnant or early in their pregnancy to determine their chance of having a child uh, with a, one of the genetic conditions that the test looks for. I know, Ainsley, that uh, as well as being an ethicist, you've got a background in genetics and, and this version of genetics called genomics. But just to explain to everybody, that 
we all have mistakes in our gene code that we call gene mutations mm -hmm. and that us on our own as one person having a mistake usually doesn't cause a problem. But if the person we partner with and have a baby with has exactly the same mistake, then we're at risk of having an affected infant. And I guess medical technology is advanced and there are lots of tests out there. Mm. And it seems in this case that the tests are there, but not everyone's getting them. So as an ethicist, what do you think about that? Oh, that is a great question and a very complicated one. I think about it on lots of different levels. So let's start with with the people who are the subject of our the case that we've just talked about. So you can think about it from their perspective. It's one about access to information. It's one about their uh, ability and opportunity to think about what kinds of parents they want to be and what kinds of children they feel that they'll be able to raise. Um, the opportunity to reflect on how they might go parenting a child with a disability or parenting a child with a condition who might die. And so from their perspective, uh, the lack of information is perceived as a harm and actually could be said to be objectively a harm to them as well. But it gets a little bit more complicated when you start thinking about broader offers. And so one question you then have to ask is, well, how should this be rolled out? Should this be a commercial product that tests for everything under the sun for anyone who has the ability to pay? Uh, the problem with that is that information about that product might not reach people who might be interested, but also not everybody is going to be in a position to pay for that, which then leaves the next question, whether we should publicly fund access to such testing and whether we should do that under a model of sort of formal population screening using public health principles or whether we should uh, make it something that is just funded via Medicare to any clinician who is willing to offer it. And I don't think we need to get into the details of that, but both of those ways of going forward have benefits and disadvantages. But more fundamentally, once you get to this question of wider population implementation, the question of what you should test for then becomes a lot more acute. So just to summarise, we have a couple who have ended up having a child with a condition that is life-limiting. That couple were not informed of that. That seems a tragedy for lots of reasons, but ultimately they were they didn't have an opportunity to make a choice when perhaps they should have. And then at the other end, when we're talking about introducing a program to test for this condition and, and lots of others like it, the issues become a little bit more complex. So, Andy, if I understand your position as an ethicist, then for this couple, it's about choice and that by not telling them they have a choice, then that's been stolen from them and in a, some way harmed them. Mm. That's correct? Yeah, I would add just a tiny condition to that. I think my take on these issues is that choice can be incredibly powerful, but choice can also be problematic. And so we need to make sure that what we're offering is good quality choices and choices that aren't going to lead to uh, a sense of increased responsibility or for the couple involved or to, uh, a huge opportunity cost in terms of um, investment of time and resources in actually making decisions. So alongside offering choice, we need to offer um, things like decision aids to help people make a, a, the choice that's right for them. 
I mean, I would have to say in my experience with the limited carrier screening that we've had in Victoria, initially with cystic fibrosis, then spinal muscular atrophy and fragile X, it sort of dichotomizes people who want to do it or they don't. Mm. And if it's on a program, people assume it's a nasty disease worth screening for. And if they're the sort of people who might screen, then they say, yes, mm. let's do it. And Others will say that's just not for me and don't. And there's a very small group in the middle who agonise over it and need a lot of support. Mm. Another ethical point is what about the right not to know? So if you tell people, and that sounds like a great idea, there are people who say, well, I'd rather not have known. And now that you've given me a choice, I'm weighed down by that and don't know what to do. And that, how does that factor in to what people might be thinking about when they're considering a program for carrier screening? Yes. Traditionally in genetics, there has been sort of almost universal endorsement for the thing you've just described, the right not to know. There is a, a little bit of a challenge to it happening in the literature at the moment, which we can set aside for another day. But ultimately, um, it is very hard to separate a complete ignorance of information from an offer of a test. And so you risk in not telling people something, that something exists, the test in this case, you risk uh, removing their opportunity to make a decision about it and you, it's impossible to make that call in advance. So I think it's about framing the offer in a way that provides enough information to make a decision that is in accordance with your values but at the same time uh, not framing the information so that people feel compelled to have the test if they're uncomfortable about it. So what emerges, I guess, for me as a couple of thoughts there. Firstly, that the critical thing is it's the way the test is offered. And I think people talk about choice architecture mm. with regard to that. And another bit of me also thinks like a consequentialist that most people benefit and a very small number might consider they're harmed by the offer and stealing away their right not to know and on balance, I'll go with the majority. Mm. I mean, what you've picked up on there, I think, is a really fundamental principle that comes up in not only just ethics when we're talking about screening in large groups of people, but also just a basic principle of sort of, you know, healthcare delivery, which is it is very difficult to have one kind of intervention universally benefit everybody. There will always be a range of experiences. And so when you're designing features into your program, I guess it's about, you've mentioned consequentialism, uh, which is maximising good for the greatest number of people framed in a fairly succinct way. But ultimately, here, I think we're talking about trying to design features into a program that allows reflection on what we're doing and why. And that's not just for the people experiencing the program, but also for people designing, um, whether it be a test panel or that is what you put on the panel, what diseases you test for or what conditions you test for, but also for the how the couples experience it too. So now that you've brought that up, I mean, what what should be on a panel? Is there anything that's not bad enough or how do we assess what is bad or what people might want? Mm, that is the question. So uh, I think for me, traditionally in the debate in the literature, this has uh, sort of hinged on a concept called seriousness and trying to get to the bottom of what constitutes a serious condition is extremely complex and actually a lot of it depends on who's asking and who's experiencing. So if you're the parent 
of the child that we've referred to in the scenario we're talking about here, I think you would see SMA as an incredibly serious condition or at least SMA type 1 as a serious condition. There may be some out there in the world who don't share that view and believe that any kind of life is a valuable life, even if that is a short life. Um, But I think also if you speak to a body of clinical providers, they would probably universally say that SMA type 1 is a serious condition. On the other hand, uh, take differences of sexual development or DSDs. These are conditions where um, a person may be born who may grow up to have physical features that don't necessarily fit one kind of biological sex or another. And traditionally, there's been some interventions there that have not been universally endorsed by the population of people who live with these conditions. And so the question would be, what are we saying about the kinds of lives that are led with this condition if we add differences of sex development to a panel that we then publicly fund and offer to a whole population. So I think that's an example where I would feel less comfortable, although I am just one voice in this debate, about that being a serious condition. Of course, you can also argue that even the word serious is problematic and we shouldn't be using seriousness as a criterion. And so some other suggestions are things like, well, it's something that people would reasonably decide not to proceed in a pregnancy with. Or it's something where people would traditionally seek testing for in a, in a naturally established pregnancy then having prenatal diagnosis. So I, I think all of those aren't perfect and actually it's because it's really hard. We don't have an ideal answer. For me, I think a fundamental thing to think about, particularly if we are talking about publicly funded screening and the word screening being the important word here, is that this is not universal diagnostic testing for the whole population. This is about um, balancing risks and benefits, and it's not about detecting every single instance of genetic disease in the population. It's about increasing the current options that are offered to parents to make a decision in a pregnancy. And so it is not, by definition, going to be a perfect program that will guarantee you a healthy baby because there is no such thing. You can't guarantee anyone a healthy baby, even with every single test that's ever been developed. So Ainsley... I find there's a difficulty that we think, all right, serious conditions, and then then is that serious to doctors who are notorious for overestimating seriousness or relying on some sort of normative ethics? What do people out there think about? Obviously, in the case, it's a very serious condition, even with treatment, but you know, we now have to factor in treatments for these conditions, the mm. same for cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, if you're pregnant and it's just not the right time for you, you can have a termination of pregnancy. Uh, so people make all sorts of yep. decisions. How do we fit Yeah, um, I This is a question that's come up again and again ever since genetic testing was a thing. And I'm not sure that it's actually helpful to try and compare those two cases. And I think my reason for that is that the social context that gets people to decision A when they're standing where they are is really important. And so a person who's ended up pregnant when they didn't intend to be and seeks a termination that has nothing to do with their risk for having a child with a genetic condition has got to that point because of a series of events that are morally serious for that individual. But then 
when we're then talking about testing in a, a more medical context where the point of it is to provide information about conditions, then that person has got there generally because they would like to have a child at the end of the process, but they want to take some steps to ensure that the child that they're parenting may not have a condition that they don't feel is one that they're going to be able to parent or one that, all things considered, um, it may be better for that person not to have. And obviously you can't then take it away from that fetus. You have to stop and start again. But ultimately I think those two sets of circumstances are quite different. Uh, One is much more socially determined and the second is a more sort of decision based on attributes of particular conditions. But with the second one, I think the reason why I don't think it should just be a free-for-all with you know, thousands of conditions on the test panel. One is that it will get quite complicated for everybody to manage. Second is that we are making a value statement once a condition is added onto a panel, particularly if it's a publicly funded testing process. We are making a value statement about what life is like with that condition and we're making a value statement about um, what life is like and what what as a a public funder we would endorse people having and that can then have all sorts of implications for whether there is a perceived duty to have a test for potential support for children who are born with this condition whether as a result of declining testing or not proceeding or just happened Um, and it then feeds into the fact that as a society generally we're actually really bad at talking about difference and disability and we need to have more sophisticated conversations about that than we are at the moment. Taking the approach that lots of people do and maybe prima facie, which means that first look, you know, what's life like for a person with one of these conditions? Mm. Whereas, you know, in screening, we're thinking about testing perhaps before somebody's pregnant and considering IVF from pre-implantation genetic Mm. diagnosis or early phases of pregnancy. But often the talk and the and the superficial thinking in my mind is about, well, that's already a whole preformed, complete person, a complete life. And therefore, people with CF generally report reasonable quality of life, for example, mm. um, and all sorts of people with surprising disabilities. And it strikes me that that's not actually the question that we want to get to. What is this life demonstrably so terrible? Mm-hmm. Because we're not talking about infanticide. We're thinking about a young couple planning a pregnancy and how they want their life and their parenting to go. So how do you sort of bring those two together? Oh, ultimately, I think that would come down in some ways to where you think life begins. And despite having worked in genetics for 20 years, I've pretty much successfully dodged that question until now. Uh, So for me, ultimately, I do see a distinction while I can't draw a line between a person existing, walking around in the world and an entity that isn't even yet a zygote. So it is still existing. If you're you're doing a test to assess reproductive risk in a couple who aren't even yet pregnant, it is at a much more abstracted timeframe. And so I would see that as conceptually different, although drawing out the exact line is extremely tricky. I'm going to just help you here, Ainsley, because I wasn't really wanting to tie you down to to that point. I guess I was thinking, 
you know, when we're deciding about carrier screening and perhaps the conditions, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my mind, and I'm keen for your thoughts, it's not really as much about the life of a person with that condition as it's about the life of the parents to be, then they are going to have their set of values mm-hmm. about what's going to make their mm-hmm. life go well or not. Yep. And thinking in a virtue ethics way, if they have a disabled child, then they're probably committed to that. But they have a choice about not having to have a disabled child and, and not have to spend 30 years waiting for things to unravel, as, as sometimes happens with some of these mm-hmm. conditions. And that's who we're thinking about. And we're not really thinking about people living with this Mm -hmm. condition. So I think what you've done there, John, is really nicely encapsulate the so-called rebuttal of a classic argument about prenatal testing in bioethics, which is known as the disability rights critique or the essentialist critique of genetic testing. And my own position is, I guess, somewhere between the two extremes that we've discussed. On, on the one hand, this is about the parents and their values and what they can do. And on the other hand, it's about, uh, let's think about the impact for people who are currently living with those conditions. And I think where I would drive to is, I agree with you. I think absolutely it's important for people uh, considering this kind of testing to think about their values and where they're going. But on the other hand, I think we also need to ensure that that decision-making is based on realistic information and, say, for example, the opportunity to to know more in reality what life is like parenting a child with a condition, but also, I guess, broad acceptance of the fact that no amount of information prenatally can really prepare you for the project of parenting and that there are lots of bumps and surprises along the way of which this can be just one. That's not to trivialise this decision. It is a a grave decision and one where, for some conditions at least, um, you would completely see the rationale for testing. So to be clear, I'm in favour of of the types of tests that we're talking about here. Um, I'm in favour of what I call appropriate implementation or prudent use of these tests. So ultimately, I think it's hard to separate out the values of parents from someone walking around with the condition. I, I think it's a bit simplistic to say, in choosing to have this test and then potentially having testing in a pregnancy and then potentially as well terminating a pregnancy if that child were to grow up with the condition in question. But, you know, you have to bring in some attributes of what life is like with that condition to do that. But it is not the same thing as saying we believe everybody who lives with this condition should never have existed or they should all be taken away or something like that. But ultimately, I think as a society, we're not particularly great at estimating what life with a difference or disability is like. And so when we're rolling out a program like this, as and when we do, we have to accompany that with access to great support about these kinds of questions. I mean, I think one of the interesting things I've noticed, because we do have some screening in Victoria and we've done that for a few years now, is the interest and support from the organisations, so Cystic Fibrosis Victoria, Spinal Muscular Atrophy Organisation, Fragile X, are in favour of the testing. Mm. And I think of one of the very first things you said, you know, even if we had tests for many, many conditions, we're not going to test for everything and we're certainly never going to get rid of disability. So I think that would be a false argument to Mm. say that we'll get rid of disability and then have less enrichment in our society because I think that we will one way or another, there will always be some disability. Yep. Ainsley, there are some details to drill down to with some ethical 
issues. So I think it gets down to some of the sort of technical testing. Do you just test for a handful of conditions, specific mutations? Do you do this thing called a, a gene sequence where you get all this information? How do you feel that ought to play out? Hmm. My approach generally is to use the technology that answers the question you have. So I'm of the view generally that just because you can obtain a whole heap of data doesn't necessarily mean that you should. But that said, at this nascent stage of genomic testing, doing a more detailed sequence, even if you don't report all of that information to couples, because if we're talking about publicly funding this in a broad population way, that brings with it a lot of resource implications if you're using a more complex technology that will find more things. But that information with um, full ethics approval and agreement from people involved could actually be used for research purposes to help us understand the genome better. But ultimately, if we're talking about like a program provided to couples, my preference would be to obtain information that actually helps them with their decision making. So if that is indeed a bigger genome sequence, then that's great. But at the moment, if it's not, then it might be better to start small and then increase as we go because decades of screening policy in other areas, not even necessarily genomics, shows us that once something is out there, even then when harms start getting demonstrated, test as a word is an extremely alluring thing. Information is very shiny and attractive and it can be extremely hard to roll things back once they're already out in the world. So we've keep the genie in the bottle. Do you know, I nearly said that and then thought, no, too much of a cliche. But <laughs> I'm never afraid of a good cliche or a mixed metaphor. <laughs> but Sometimes you just can't help in where the mutations might sit or they're very closely you want to catch up with something and then next to it something that's not quite as, as mm. relevant. And so do you think one way around that sometimes is upfront a priori in the T's and C's is we're not going to tell you about those things, even though we'll be sitting on information and I loosely have some information that could be of interest or importance to you. Do you is that a, an ethical way to get around the problem? Yeah, it's one way to get around the problem. And I think what you're talking about here is known in my world as the incidental findings debate. I think it's known as that in your world too. And there's a, a few different nomenclatures being thrown around about it. And generally, the approach in places like most Australian states has been relatively conservative, which is to not deliberately try and find information that's not directly relevant to your clinical question that you're answering. But sometimes, as you said, you can't unsee it. It's literally there right in front of you. It's right next to what you're looking at, or sometimes it's even in the middle of what you're looking at. And one way you can say is to kind of tell people in advance that you're not going to tell them. I'd say it's one component of a solution. What we also know, however, is that people aren't particularly fantastic at reading this information. They just, you know, anyone who has done a software license agreement when installing stuff on their laptop knows you just scroll to the bottom, tick the box and move on. I think it's a broader challenge of public engagement around this is what this program is for. This is what this test is for. It is not a health test for you. It is a test about some things that a group of individuals uh, who are at the top of their game in their field have decided is important. Um, and it's up to you to decide whether it's important for you to or not. We're, so we're not going to tell you about Z, but we could tell you about B, C and D if we happen to see them. And so I think it's really about promoting 
what the aims of the program are and what it seeks to achieve. And so while a sort of disclaimer for individuals is one way in that, um, when we're talking about something like this, which is a preconception or a carrier screening test, it's not necessarily a test that is going to be used for individual health behaviour change or things like that. There will be people who don't agree with that statement that I've just made, but I think ultimately, at least at this nascent stage of implementation, starting small, doing a test and a program of support around it well, will gain public trust, such as the fantastic public trust and engagement we have in newborn screening programs in Australia with almost universal uptake. And so if we don't try to bite off more than we can chew and we're doing a program well, then that's great. There will always be exceptions to this, however. There might genuinely be something found that is of high relevance to the individual, which is easily preventable. And I think at this stage, at least, they would be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. So I'm going to pick up on a couple of things. The first thing you mentioned, newborn screening, and that's just a, a, a red rag to a bull, I think it's almost universal because we almost don't consent even though we are consenting, but it's just, let's do it. And that's potentially a risk for carrier screening that it's just proceduralized as part of prenatal mm-hmm. testing and that would be a bad thing. Talked about results to the individual and we've talked about resources. So I want to marry those two together because there's a ethical point that troubles me a bit that if you're testing for lots of conditions, you're going to find lots of carriers because we all carry two or three or five mutations for different conditions. Therefore, we could overwhelm the system if we screen a lot of people for a lot of conditions. Mm -hmm. So a way around that is just telling a couple, assuming there is a couple who comes to screening, of course, but you Mm -hmm. just tell a couple when they're at high risk because both of them have the same thing. And you don't tell them their individual result, which is they might carry something else that's of no immediate relevance to their health, although it might be of relevance to their siblings' health. Is that a legitimate way to deal with the resource issue or are we sitting on information that people might use and that's a harm to them? Mm. This is a trade-off between making something accessible to the population and telling everybody absolutely everything that they could know about themselves. And so what you're alluding to, I think, is is a program of carrier screening that is offered to couples to give them a risk as a couple versus individual screening that gives individual risk. And as you've stated, when you do couple screening, you're going to find less things because uh, the chances of finding two people together that have the same risk is much smaller than picking up one of the whatever it is, 65 or something mutations that all of us will have individually. And my, for, for my money, at least at the moment, I think if we're talking about publicly funded screening, I'm, I, I'm, I agree with the couple-based method. I think it is more feasible from a resourcing perspective because the numbers detected will be smaller, but also perhaps more fundamentally, it is true to the aims of the program, which is to provide people with a risk for a potential pregnancy for that couple. It's quite a complex thing to engage about, though, because... I think there is a potential for some misunderstanding where couple-based results might be perceived as individual results where someone might repartner and not understand that um, they need to get retested with their new partner. But also we have to not ignore um, people who reproduce in ways that are different from the one that that model tends to impute. So people who are single people uh, who have children using donor gametes or people who are in same-sex relationships and and, um, having a pregnancy using donor gametes there too. And I think uh, 
any program needs to account for those people who who have children in all different ways. Thanks, Ainsley. I think, you know, one of the things through the podcast, we've talked about programs, I guess it's become obvious that there's a nascent program in Victoria, thinking about a, a more widespread program in Australia. So I think it's worth stating that just this year, the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which you don't ever have to hear again, it's called RANSCOG, has firmed up their rather loose statements of previous years to indicate that women or couple planning a pregnancy on the early phases of pregnancy should be offered mm-hmm. carrier screening for some inherited conditions and they name cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, fragile X, and in an earlier part of that document, some of the haemoglobinopathies mm-hmm. as well. Can I just correct one thing? I think it's quite an important distinction. I literally read these six minutes before we started recording, so I'm fairly sure I'm right. It's they should be offered information about carrier screening, not that they should be offered the test. And I, there's a little distinction there, which I think is just important to bear in mind. Thank you for pulling me up. But I think that is 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 critical because I think that it's about provision of information. That's what we've talked about. Mm. It's about how that's offered. But I do want to finish here, and um, I've, I've, I've done this before. Uh, you can't see it because this is a podcast. So I'm getting out of my seat, and I'm walking around Ainsley with a rope. I'm tying her firmly to the chair. It's a little hard to breathe, so she's got to give us a short answer here. Ainsley, it's obvious, isn't it, that everyone should be offered screening for inherited diseases? What do you think? Everyone to whom it is relevant for whom it is in alignment with their values, and who wants it. I think that's a pretty good answer. So thank you very much for joining me, Ainsley. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded in the Creative Services Studio at the Royal Children's Hospital. It was produced in conjunction with Wavelength Creative. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.